This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 163rd edition of the program. Today is October 11th, and before we start the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Brent P., Daniel Luna Leon, Edward Ferrante, John Dorsey, Jose Manuel Almanza Jr., Ken Regal, Kevin Athern and Michael Crawford. So thank you so much to all of these kind people. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about the fallout regarding the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, including Donald Trump's apology to Kavanaugh on behalf of the nation. Mitch McConnell finally gets called out for his hypocrisy, and he didn't take it too well. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shames Chuck Grassley for referring to protesters as, quote, a mob. Sean Hannity wants to insulate people in power even more from the peasants. Susan Collins is angry about the grassroots momentum that's building against her 2020 re-election campaign. Ben Shapiro wants to convince you he's pro-life while simultaneously being unapologetically pro-war. We'll talk about his hypocrisy. Additionally, the entire internet industry is teaming up to sue California in an effort to overturn their newly codified net neutrality law. Bernie Sanders sets his sights on McDonald's in an attempt to pressure the fast food giant to raise workers' wages to $15 an hour. A report released by the UN warns us that we only have 12 years to act on climate change in order to avert disaster. So that's what we've got on the agenda for this week. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the episode. Over the course of the last week, Republicans like Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham have been trying to convince you that Brett Kavanaugh is a victim. It's not Christine Blasey Ford who's the real victim, it's actually Brett Kavanaugh. In fact, Trump was so adamant about the fact that Brett Kavanaugh was the real victim here that he decided to go on national television and publicly apologize to Brett Kavanaugh on behalf of the nation. On behalf of our nation, I want to apologize to Brett and the entire Kavanaugh family for the terrible pain and suffering you have been forced to endure. Those who step forward to serve our country deserve a fair and dignified evaluation, not a campaign of political and personal destruction based on lies and deception. What happened to the Kavanaugh family violates every notion of fairness, decency, and due process. Our country, a man or a woman, must always be presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. And with that, I must state that you, sir, under historic scrutiny, were proven innocent. Thank you. I mean, I can't help but think, after watching that, that we are truly in the stupidest timeline. I mean, this is just... 
<laughs> I don't know how else to describe this situation. We're witnessing pure madness, folks. Pure madness. Now, first of all, nothing was proven. I don't get why Republicans are trying to equate the confirmation process to a criminal trial. This wasn't a criminal trial. There were no charges against Brett Kavanaugh. This was a job interview, essentially, and if he wanted to clear his name, well, maybe he should have unequivocally stated his support for an FBI investigation, which is something that an innocent person would likely do. But instead, he dodged questions about whether or not he'd support that, and when we finally got an FBI investigation, President Donald Trump placed limits on the FBI, so it couldn't do much, and then we learned that he actually allowed them to expand the investigation, only to later find out that, regardless if that was true, the FBI still didn't really do much. They didn't speak with key witnesses like Christine Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh himself, and when the results were finally released, even United States senators only had five minutes each to look at one physical copy of the FBI's report, so absolutely nothing was proven. This was not a criminal trial. There were no charges that a prosecutor filed against Brett Kavanaugh. A jury didn't rule that he's innocent and acquit him. This was not a trial. This was a job interview, an interview for a promotion more specifically. And if you think he was treated poorly, and he's the true victim here, well, for a victim, turned out pretty well for him, right? Because he's now sitting on the Supreme Court as we speak. Now, to be fair, you can argue that maybe it was the case that Brett Kavanaugh was proven innocent in the court of public opinion, but even that isn't really correct because most Americans oppose Kavanaugh's confirmation and a majority of the country believes that Christine Blasey Ford is credible. So even by that standard, his innocence was not proven. But the most outrageous part, I think, about all of this is that as Trump sat there, and apologized to Kavanaugh and painted him as the victim and talked about how his life was ruined by these accusations. Well, it's still the case that Christine Blasey Ford is not able to return home due to death threats that she's still receiving from people that buy into this notion that Brett Kavanaugh is the real victim here. And my question is whether or not Donald Trump is also going to apologize to Christine Blasey Ford. I mean, after all, it was Donald Trump himself that called her allegations credible just a week ago. I thought her testimony was very compelling, and she looks like a very fine woman to me. Very fine woman. But certainly she was a uh, very credible witness. Well, if she's credible, then why not apologize to her publicly on behalf of the nation as well? For everything that she went through. For everything she still going through. She literally is unable to return home, and according to her lawyers, she's not going to be able to return home for the foreseeable future because people who support you believe this idea that Brett Kavanaugh is the one who was harmed through all of this. It's not like it was traumatizing for her to relive that experience in front of everyone in the country watching. It's Kavanaugh who's the victim. So are you going to take into account what she's been through and apologize to her? Well, of course not, because after Donald Trump said that she's credible, he went on to mock her at a rally in Mississippi. I had one beer. Well, do you think it was... Nope, it was one beer. Oh, good. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. What neighborhood was it in? I don't know. Where's the house? I don't know. Upstairs, downstairs, where was it? I don't know. But I had one beer. That's the only thing I remember. 
And a man's life is in tatters. A man's life is shattered. A man's life is shattered. Unbelievable. I think Brett Kavanaugh is going to be okay. Maybe that's a jump, but he's serving on the Supreme Court as we speak. I think he's going to be okay. In actuality, a woman's life was shattered because that woman is still unable to return home. That woman was traumatized and survived an attempted rape. And then she was mocked by the president only to see that same president who once called her credible days earlier apologize to the man that allegedly tried to rape her. I mean, you want to talk about a life being shattered. Christine Blasey Ford put everything on the line and that shattered her life. And guess what? She didn't even get justice. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be to admit that on national television. But she did it anyway. She put it on the line so the American people can learn about the true Brett Kavanaugh and so she'd maybe get justice. But she got nothing out of the situation. She only got punished. And when Donald Trump explained why he thought it was necessary to mock her after calling her credible, well, his reasoning is absolutely absurd. And some people said that you were extremely unkind uh, to Christine Ford. But what, what was it that got you to pivot from your restraint about her and to fight for Kavanaugh at that point? Well, there were a lot of things happening that weren't correct. They weren't true. And there were a lot of things that were left unsaid. And I thought I had to even the playing field. He had to even the playing field. Yes, because it's about time that men finally have their voices heard in this country. This is the stupidest timeline. I don't even know what to say about this. Don't even know what to say. Now, as women across the country watched all of this unfold, a reporter asked him, What's your message to women after all of this? Because clearly you can't maintain this facade that the Republican Party even pretends to care about women. So what's your message to all of these women? And his response was in Trumpian fashion, completely idiotic. You talked about how this is a moment for young men across the country. You said it was a scary moment. But what is your message today to the women across this country who are feeling devastated, feeling like the message that's been sent here is they that are. they're not being... I don't seen. think they are. I think actually that women, if you look, if you look at the biggest fans, and I can tell you that the people that spoke to me most, this really in the strongest of terms, were in, in his favor were women. You have a lot of women that are extremely happy, a tremendous number of women, because they're thinking of their sons, they're thinking of their husbands and their brothers and their uncles and others. <laughs> That's how I feel whenever I hear Donald Trump. Look, I think he's getting stupider. You know how whenever a president is sworn in and then four or eight eight years later you can really see the toll that being president took on them they just age so rapidly trump isn't necessarily aging rapidly but i think he is becoming more stupid the presidency is definitely having that effect on him because he doesn't really look any older he still looks just as orange and disgusting as he did when he was sworn in but i think he's actually getting stupider 
What a stupid statement. I mean, he doesn't like the facts of the situation, so he imposes his own worldview so he can sleep better at night. Oh, women aren't mad at me. They're excited. Actually, they're some of the most excited people about Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, what a joke. Now, even though we all expect, reasonable people expect Donald Trump to say idiotic things, well, it still matters what he says because what the president says matters. During the Me Too era, when women are finally speaking out and telling their stories, Donald Trump is trying to say, well, actually, it's the men who are the victims. He's trying to flip it. And this is catching on among his base. And there's an example of this. So in a since-deleted viral post, one mom said this about her son. This is my son. He's a gentleman who respects women. He won't go on solo dates due to the current climate of false sexual accusations by radical feminists with an axe to grind. I vote. Hashtag him too. Now, this is the general perception that a lot of MAGA cultists have of the situation. During this Me Too era, they're believing that it's actually the men who are the real victims here. Now, are false accusations a thing? Of course they're a thing. It happens. But what they're refusing to realize is that only 2 to 10% of the time are those accusations of sexual misconduct actually false. But instead... Donald Trump is getting all of his sycophantic loyalist followers to believe that actually it's men who are the victims in this situation. And even if it's the case that false accusations do occur, well, generally, black men are actually the ones more likely to be falsely accused of being guilty. And this expands beyond sexual misconduct allegations. If Donald Trump was being honest and actually did in fact worry about due process and the presumption of innocence, he'd be speaking out against the deaths of Philando Castile and Tamir Rice. But I mean, that doesn't hit close to home for Donald Trump because they're black and he's racist. And since he has, what, 14, 15, 16 accusers himself, he desperately needs you to believe that when women come forward and tell their stories, they're lying because that's something that benefits Donald Trump. Now, going back to the mom of a Navy son who apparently doesn't want to go on solo dates because he's so worried about false accusations, that story was made up. That guy's name is Peter Hansen, and he tweeted this out. That was my mom. Sometimes the people we love do things that hurt us without realizing it. Let's turn this around. I respect and believe women. I never have and never will support hashtag him too. I'm a proud Navy vet, cat dad, and ally. Also, Twitter... Your meme game is on point. And when he talks about Twitter's meme game, he's referring to people who memed his mom and mocked her post relentlessly. It was pretty hilarious, and I'm glad that he kind of took it lightheartedly. So this is what right-wingers do. If something is true, they'll say the opposite. And even if people don't believe the opposite, it at least moves the argument a little bit in their direction. But what they're doing is they're imposing victimhood on themselves, not just Donald Trump, but his followers, in order to validate the worldview that Trump tells them is real. Now, after all of this, after mocking Christine Blasey Ford, after getting what they wanted, Trump still had the audacity to accuse the left of being extremists. You don't hand matches to an arsonist, and you don't give power to an angry left-wing mob, and that's what they've become. The Democrats have become too extreme and too dangerous to govern. Republicans believe in the rule of law 
not the rule of the mob. So let me ask you this, Don. Is the left actually an angry mob or, according to your conspiracy theory, is the left who were protesting Kavanaugh part of an AstroTurf campaign funded by George Soros to make it seem like Brett Kavanaugh and you are more hated by Americans than you are in actuality? I mean, look, this is a conspiracy theory that's convenient for Donald Trump and MAGA cultists because... Again, it validates their worldview. They don't care about facts. They don't care about reality. They care about their feelings. They put feelings over facts. So if you're one of the individuals who worship Donald Trump as if he's a god, one of the individuals that called me a cuck or a soy boy, you're never going to be convinced. You're too far gone. If this doesn't show you that Donald Trump and the Republican Party don't care about women, then absolutely nothing will convince you of that. You're too far gone. After Susan Collins was finally finished sucking up as much attention as she possibly could by pretending to be undecided about whether or not she'd vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh, she then decided to milk the media for a little bit more attention by going on Sunday shows and talking about why she decided to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. But I think she's beginning to learn that not all press is good press because her indecisiveness is exactly what gave grassroots supporters enough time to raise more than $3.6 million between 100,000 people for her future 2020 opponent. And after she finally announced her decision that she would in fact be voting for Kavanaugh, there were so many people that tried to contribute to her future opponent that she actually crashed Crowdpack's website. So the people are on to you, Susan. They know that you were just pretending to be undecided, as you always do. I mean, you always pretend to be undecided. Jeff Flake does the same thing. Heidi Heitkamp does the same thing. Joe Manchin does the same thing. But I think that you're kind of a special case in this instance, Susan, because you really went above and beyond to milk it. You gave us a 45-minute speech. And finally, towards the end, after keeping us on the edge of our seats, you admitted that you're going to, unsurprisingly, do what you always do. Vote along party lines. So I'm just, I'm tired of her. And I absolutely support this effort to fund her a future opponent. Now look, I'm against money in politics, but certainly we need money to defeat corporate Democrats and Republicans. And the way we do that and keep candidates actually pure, for lack of a better term, is by raising money through grassroots individual donors. And that's exactly what this is. So I absolutely support this initiative. However, Susan Collins, she is not happy about this. In fact, in an interview with CBS, she actually said that these voters who are funding her future opponent, well, they're committing a quid pro quo. And this is tantamount to bribery, insinuating that this might actually be illegal. This is a classic quid pro quo as defined in our bribery laws. They are asking me to perform an official act. And if I do not do what they want, two million plus dollars is going to go to my opponent. I think that if our politics has come to the point where people are trying to buy votes and buy positions, that we are in a very sad place. So that clip right there is evidence that Susan Collins has absolutely no idea what she's talking about. 
She's just butthurt at the fact that she pissed off her constituents in a blue state by voting for one of the most egregious Supreme Court picks in modern history. And it's not just that we dislike Brett Kavanaugh because he is accused of attempted rape by Christine Blasey Ford and sexual assault by Deborah Ramirez, but we also dislike him because he's overtly political and also he's constitutionally illiterate. He's against the Fourth Amendment. And he would vote to dismantle the Fourth Amendment if you look at his other rulings. He's against net neutrality. So this is someone who is dangerous, and she voted to confirm him. That's why they're angry. But when they raise money, her constituents and grassroots activists across the country raise money to bankroll her inevitable 2020 opponent, what does she do? Well, she cries about it being corruption and being bribery that's actually comparable to a quid pro quo because they're trying to buy votes. No, that's not buying votes, Susan Collins. What they're doing is demanding that you actually represent them, and if you don't, then what they're going to do is fund your opponent and get someone who will represent them. And think about how ridiculous this is. So last year, when the Koch Network threatened to cut off their piggy bank to Republicans unless they passed either health care or tax reform, well, what did Republicans do months later? They ended up passing tax reform, exactly as their donors demanded. And that, in fact, was a bill that Susan Collins voted for. So by her own standards, that was a very clear quid pro quo because the Koch brothers literally bought their votes. They bought the votes of the Republican Party, an entire party. What did Susan Collins have to say about that? What did she say about the Koch brothers trying to influence votes by using money? Nothing. When voters try to fund her opponent, that's vote buying. That's bribery. That's a quid pro quo. When the Koch brothers do it, meh, that's just politics as usual, according to Susan Collins. And look, I've got even more examples to show you just how little Susan Collins cares about corruption. So throughout her career, Susan Collins took more than $600,000 from the defense industry. And can you guess what she also did? She voted for the Iraq war. And also she voted to expand the military budget recently. She also took $3.6 million from the financial services industry and then voted to deregulate the big banks and rollback Dodd-Frank. She's also taken $1.8 million overall from the health industry, and she does not support Medicare for All. So it turns out that Susan Collins knows quite a bit about vote buying and corruption and bribery and quid pro quos because she's just as corrupt as anybody else in the Senate. The difference here is that she's only outraged about money in politics and speaks out against it if it's thousands of Americans coming together to raise money collectively with small donations to fund her opponent, that's when she's going to speak up about money in politics. But when the Koch brothers do it and say that they're going to cut off access to the piggy bank if Republicans don't do exactly as they demand, she has nothing to say about that. You're a hypocrite, Susan Collins. You're a hypocrite and we're all onto your plan. You pretend to be undecided. For weeks, suck up as much media coverage as possible, get as much attention as possible, and then you do what you always do. You vote along party lines with Republicans. So I absolutely support this effort. I absolutely support funding her inevitable opponent. And it does seem as if Susan Rice has expressed interest in possibly challenging her and getting that money. 
but uh, I think we can do better than Susan Rice. I think we can find a true progressive in Maine who can actually represent the people in a way that Susan Collins refuses to do. Because if you try as a constituent to get a hold of her or put pressure on her, she's going to accuse you of trying to bribe her. So clearly, she doesn't want to hear from you. So we need someone in there that actually does want to hear from their constituents. And that person is not Susan Collins. So if Susan doesn't like that people across America are actually standing up to these corrupt politicians like her, then that's too bad. And I wish that we could set up a hundred different crowdfunding campaigns for every single member of the Senate, every single one of them. And anytime they do something bad, we donate and fund their future opponent. Because if there's one thing that pisses off these corrupt politicians, it's making them have to work harder to keep their job. So, I say we do this for everyone, Lindsey Graham. I think there's already one for Lindsey Graham, if I'm not mistaken. If you say represent me because I voted for you, that means nothing to them. If you say, if you do not represent me and I will donate to your uh, opponent in response, that actually seems to be something that concerns them. So I say we set up crowdfunding campaigns for every single one of these corrupt assholes. And anytime they do something that's bad, that's antithetical to democracy, that flies in the face of what American voters want, we fund their future politicians because I don't just want to accept that, well, you know, this person, they're not up for re-election until 2020 or 2022. I say we take action now. And if we start early, imagine the fund that their future opponent will have. It'd be amazing. So I'm all for this. I think this is a phenomenal move. And really, it's a brilliant strategy to get politicians to actually pay attention to voters for once. Senate Majority Leader and human-turtle hybrid Mitch McConnell has recently been speaking out a lot against the level of pushback that Republicans have been receiving throughout the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, and I find this hilarious seeing that he just blocked President Obama's Supreme Court nominee for more than a year, but he's going to complain about the pushback they're receiving. I mean... He's one of the biggest hypocrites in Washington, D.C., but thankfully, he was actually called out for his hypocrisy in an interview on Face the Nation, and he honestly didn't know how to respond because Mitch McConnell, he'll just lie through his teeth on mainstream media when he actually does get interviewed by them, and they usually don't call him out when he just brazenly lies, but this time was a little bit different. In the history of partisanship on the Supreme Court, your decision to block Merrick Garland uh, is something they see as, as having kicked off a new stage in the partisanship associated with Supreme Court nominees. Yeah, they don't know much history. You have to go back to 1880 to find the last time a Senate controlled by a different party from the president confirmed a Supreme Court justice to a vacancy created in the middle of a presidential election. They also conveniently forgotten that Joe Biden said in 1992 when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, the Democrats control the Senate, Republican in the White House. If a vacancy occurred, they wouldn't fill it. They also conveniently forgot that Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid, 18 months before the end of Bush 43, said if a Supreme Court vacancy occurred, they wouldn't fill it. But Talk Mr. about Leader, hypocrisy. Right. But, Mr. Leader, I don't think that's right. In 1956, Eisenhower nominated Brennan. The, the 84th Congress was a Democrat-controlled. And also on the Biden rule, Joe Biden was talking in the abstract. There was no nominee. No nominee was blocked. And he said to not have the nomination come up before the election, but that it could come up after the election. And so what Democrats 
say when they hear you doing this is they say he's creating new rules to essentially do what he wants to do. And as you've written in your book, The Long Game, when you do that, it actually hurts democracy. Yeah, well, that's not exactly, that's not at all what happened, John. You're, you're completely misconstruing what happened. What I gave you is the history of this. I know the history of this. I've spent a lot of time on this throughout my career. What I did was entirely consistent with what the history of the Senate's been in that situation going back to 1880. Well, I, I think the 1956 example and also in 1968, later in the election cycle, when a Democratic president put somebody forward, the Republican leader worked with him to get that person a hearing and get him towards the Supreme Court, which is not something that you did. A vote at the time. Then there was a Democrat. Then there was a Democrat in the White House and a Democratic Senate. But the Republican leader at the not, time tried to help the Democratic me, president. John. John, you are not listening to me. The history is, is exactly as I told you. Well, we have we have a disagreement about the history, but I greatly yeah, appreciate it. So that to me was absolutely great. And you can tell that a politician is stumped when they just revert back to the same talking point that they've already used a hundred different times. Because what did he say when, when he was pressed further? Well, you have to go back to 1980. Stop. Just stop. Stop being a robot for just two seconds and answer the man's goddamn question. But Mitch McConnell cannot do that because he probably just memorizes these talking points. The Republican Party is very cohesive when it comes to messaging, and he just decided to spout that same bullshit line over and over again. But clearly, you were fact-checked, and you've been proven wrong. Someone in the mainstream media actually did their job and called you out on your lie, Mitch. And regardless of what he wants you to believe, what Mitch McConnell did in blocking Merrick Garland was unprecedented. And even if you don't like Merrick Garland, I know I certainly don't, it's still the principle of what he did. I mean, this is a new low. He refused to hold even a single hearing for Merrick Garland, let alone a vote. And now this asshole has the audacity to complain about the resistance that he saw from Democrats. What little of a fight that they decided to put up. Really? I mean, this guy's unbelievable. I can't stand him. Now, what he did regardless of what he wants you to believe, is create a brand new standard. If there's an election year and a Supreme Court vacancy becomes open. Sorry, we can't fill that seat until after the election. So in the event that it's the 2020 election and another vacancy emerges on the Supreme Court, is Mitch McConnell going to block Trump's possible nominee then? Well, he was asked this very question on Fox News, of all places, and his answer was really telling. When you block Merrick Garland's nomination from President Obama, you basically said that we don't do this in a presidential election year and that we wait until the election and then whoever the people choose, they get to pick the Supreme Court nominee. But but what you just said now was it's a question of whether or not it's the the uh, the, the party in control of the Senate is different than the president. I, the question I guess I, I'm getting to here is if Donald Trump were to name somebody in the final year of his first term in 2020, are you saying that you would go ahead with that nomination? Well, I understand your question. And what I told you was what the, what the history of the Senate has been. You have to go back to the 1880 to find the last time a vacancy created in a presidential election year on the Supreme Court was confirmed by a Senate of a different party than the president. So, That's the history. So if you can't answer my direct a, question, we, we, are you saying that if well, Donald the, Trump... The, the, 
the answer to your question is we'll see whether there's a vacancy in 2020. But you're not ruling out the possibility, since you're the Republican majority leader and there's a Republican president, that you would go for and, and, and push the nomination of a Trump nominee in the election year. What I'm telling you is the history is you have to go back to 1880 to find the last time a Senate controlled by a party different from the president filled a vacancy on the Supreme Court that was created in the middle of a presidential election year. That's been the history. I swear to God, if I hear Mitch McConnell utter the words, you have to go all the way back to 1880, I'm going to lose my shit. (laughs) I hate how politicians, they have to stick to the same scripted line over and over and over and over. And you ask, and if you ask them a follow-up question, they just say the same thing. Answer the fucking question. So essentially, he tried to dodge that question and be evasive. But when it comes to whether or not Mitch McConnell would, in fact, hold hearings and ultimately vote for a Supreme Court nominee in 2020 for Donald Trump, his answer was really telling and not answering. You're damn right he'd do that. But the question is, well, how would he justify that if he previously said, look, we're not going to hold votes or even hearings for Supreme Court nominees until the American people have made their voices heard? We're not going to do this during election years. How would he justify it? Well, by moving the goalpost. Now, what he's saying is that, well, I actually only meant that you don't fill the court if there's a vacancy, if there's a different party in charge of the Senate. But if it's the same party that's in charge of the Senate as the president, well, then it's perfectly acceptable to fill that seat. So in the event there's a vacancy in 2020 and Trump names a new nominee for the Supreme Court, yes, we will vote on it because, well, we're part of the same party. So obviously, he's a liar. And by trying to create this standard that, oh, we can't nominate someone during election years, clearly he's gaslighting Americans because even he doesn't buy into that because he's already trying to twist himself into a pretzel and do mental gymnastics to justify what may be another Supreme Court nominee for Donald Trump. So understand that they've made it very clear, Mitch McConnell has made it clear that their party is going to play as dirty as they possibly can in order to get their Supreme Court nominees through. So what does that mean for the next Democratic administration? They've got to be dirtier. When they go low, you can't go high, you've got to go lower. Because these are individuals who are ruthless and they're willing to do whatever they possibly can to make sure that they secure that majority on the Supreme Court. So when the next Democratic Party president is elected, that individual has got to be adamant that we move forward with a court packing plan. You add five more Supreme Court justices and make sure that they're all liberal. The Constitution does not stipulate the number of justices that are supposed to be on the court. So you make up a number, add more, and then you do what you can to codify legislation that stops Republicans from doing the same exact thing when they get power next time. It's dirty, but this is what they did. They brought it to this level of gutter politics when they decided to hold open a Supreme Court seat for more than a year. So now, what do Democrats have to do? They have to play dirty. And if playing dirty means that you look bad, but you're doing it 
in order to stop political violence against women and workers and marginalized communities, well, then it's well worth it to play dirty if it means going to bat for them. Because again, Republicans are the ones that drew first blood here. They brought it to this level, and now they're going to have to suffer the consequences, or they should suffer the consequences, rather, rather, of Democrats playing dirty. Do I think Democrats would play dirty? <laughs> no, I don't, because they have no spines, they have no backbones, but it's certainly what they should do if they actually want to protect the communities they claim to care about. So, that's really all that I have to say about this issue. We have to fight fire with fire, and I think that there's very few Democrats that want to do it. Certainly, Chuck Schumer. I mean, have you heard anything from Chuck Schumer really lately? I mean, he's made a few statements on the, on the Senate floor about the Brett Kavanaugh disaster. But, I mean, he's not going on the Sunday shows, screaming from the rooftops that what they did is completely unacceptable. He's not a fighter. He, he's completely unfit to lead at a time when we need unapologetic fighters for the left. So the one last clip that I do want to show you of Mitch McConnell was one that kind of made me giggle a little bit because he was clearly triggered by a question that he was asked. In the Alabama Senate race last year, you very quickly said after Judge Roy Moore was accused of inappropriate conduct towards teenagers uh, many years ago, you immediately said that you believed the women why didn't you believe Christine Blasey Ford? I can't imagine comparing Brett Kavanaugh to Roy Moore. <laughs> what a triggered little snowflake Mitch McConnell is. Ah, so I have nothing to say about that. I think personally that it is acceptable for uh, us to compare Brett Kavanaugh to Roy Moore, seeing that his party, they have no problem comparing gay people to individuals who commit acts of bestiality and pedophilia. That's what they do all the time. That's how they fought against gay marriage. Oh, we're going to extend marriage to pedophiles next? That's the argument that they made. So that's all I got to say. Um, I hate Mitch McConnell. I think most Americans who are reasonable people hate Mitch McConnell, but I will say this. He's effective. And if we had a Democratic Party leader that was just half as effective and willing to fight for their values and party as he is then I think we'd be in a different place. So, I mean, even if he's a horrible person, he knows how to fight, he knows how to destroy the opposition. We just need someone on the left in the Democratic Party, someone with power, to do the same thing. Individuals with social media accounts have probably realized that conservatives lately have been more insufferable than usual because they've been doing a victory lap over the course of the last week in celebration of Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed to the Supreme Court. Now, part of this is them just being excited that his confirmation triggers the libs because that's really a driving motivator for a lot of people who support right-wing policy and Donald Trump and individuals like Brett Kavanaugh. But Another reason they support Brett Kavanaugh isn't necessarily because, you know, they just love his judicial philosophy or think he has the right temperament to be on the Supreme Court. It's because they're going to get something that the right has been wanting for a very, very long time. An overturning of Roe v. Wade. And just sit back and think for a minute. In the event Brett Kavanaugh was that vote that struck down Roe v. Wade, could you imagine how quickly states would act? I think within the first year, there'd be at least a dozen states that outright ban abortion. 
They're doing what they can to restrict access to safe and legal abortions, and in the event they finally get what they want, I think we're going to see the policy repercussions of that almost immediately. Now, part of the celebration isn't just from your conservative racist uncles, it's from actual lawmakers like Steve King, who tweeted out a picture of an adorable baby with the caption, Soon, babies like this little angel will be protected in the womb by law. Now, what assumptions do you think are embedded in that tweet? One, obviously, is that abortion is tantamount to baby killing, and two, it's that conservatives care about babies like that. Liberals, we're all cold-hearted, we don't give a shit about babies, we're all for baby killing, we're pro-baby killing. That's essentially what he wants you to believe. That's the moral argument that he's making, and he's using that picture to prime you to think about abortion in a less nuanced way, to get you to believe that any woman who does have abortion has, in fact, committed an atrocity that is akin to murder. That's exactly what he wants you to think, and it's not just lawmakers like Steve King. Propagandists on Fox News like Ben Shapiro also utilized the same tactic. They tried to get you to believe that abortion Abortion is murder by showing you images of fetuses in the womb and showing you that really, you know, abortion isn't so different than actually killing a baby, literally. And part of this is them just trying to prepare the masses for what may be an overturning of Roe v. Wade. So in order to avert some hysteria nationwide, they're trying to get you to think, well, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's really not that big of a deal. So we're going to talk about their argument, uh, people like Steve King, but first I want to show you a clip of Ben Shapiro, and what you're going to see here is just pure Republican Party propaganda. The pro-abortion movement suggests that pro-lifers are extreme. In reality, the extreme position on abortion is held by the Democratic Party. Their platform calls for legal abortion all the way until point of birth. But pro-abortion extremists get away with their rhetoric because they use euphemistic language to describe what exactly abortion is. In fact, the word abortion is itself a euphemism. The procedure of abortion isn't an anodyne polyp removal. It involves doing terminal violence to an unborn child. Ignoring that fact allows abortion advocates to avoid looking reality directly in the face. So, for just a few moments, let's look reality in the face. This is a picture of a 19-week-old baby. This is a human child. This is not a ball of goo. This is not a cluster of cells. In January, 44 Democrats in the United States Senate voted not to protect the rights of babies older than this unborn child. Only three Democrats, Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, and Bob Casey, voted to protect children at 20 weeks. Only two Republicans voted against such protection, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Take a good look at that baby. That is a human being with zero rights, according to the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And human life doesn't begin at 20 weeks. This is a picture of a baby at 12 weeks, barely three months. You can see this baby with his hands near his chest. This is not a cluster of cells. This is not a ball of goo. His genitalia have already been formed. His liver and spleen produce red blood cells. This is an unborn human being. Not a single federally elected Democrat would vote for an abortion ban that would protect this baby's life. And life doesn't begin at 14 weeks. This is a picture of an unborn human being at eight weeks. You can identify the head of this unborn human. You can see where the small buds are forming for arms and legs. But guess what? Life doesn't begin at eight weeks either. 
It begins at fertilization, when a new human life is formed, a new human being with its own DNA. This human being is not its mother, it is not its father, it is not a polyp. If we found a human embryo on another planet, the headlines would rightly scream, human life found on Mars. Human life is a continuous process of growth from the moment of fertilization onward. Abortion is the killing of this human life. The later the abortion takes place, the more brutal the procedure. But no matter the brutality of the procedure, it is obvious that abortion is not some mere optional surgery to be performed for convenience. And it's even more obvious that those who want to protect the lives of the unborn aren't trying to control women's bodies. Those who cherish abortion are trying to control and dismember the bodies of the unborn. Think about that next time you see a radical feminist in a handmaid's tail outfit suggesting that you'd better respect her right to carve apart an unborn baby in the womb or you're some sort of fascist. When it comes to propaganda, that has to be very effective, right? Because he doesn't have the facts on his side when it comes to abortion. So what he tries to do is get you to suspend reason and logic and think more about your feelings. He's showing you the picture of the 12-week-old baby, and he's saying, look, this is this is a baby. Is that really different than an actual born child? Look, look at the similarities here. This is purely propaganda, and we're going to get through that. But first of all, he just makes up things about what the left believes. And Ben Shapiro strawmans the arguments of the left almost all the time, and he just outright made up something in order to demonize the left and the Democratic Party. He says, quote, that the Democratic Party's platform calls for legal abortion all the way until the point of birth. That's factually incorrect, because when you look at the Democratic Party's platform, it says absolutely nothing about abortion all the way up until the last trimester of a woman's pregnancy. In fact, they don't even specify when they believe it's still morally acceptable for a woman to have an abortion. They don't say 12 weeks, they don't say 24 weeks, and they certainly don't endorse the idea that a woman should be able to get an abortion the day before she is due to give birth. Of course, they don't say that. Ben Shapiro made that up. And if Ben Shapiro heard me make that argument, he'd probably say, well, what about the abortion or the uh, the Democrats rather that support late term abortions? Well, first of all, if a Democrat or any liberal or progressive has indicated support for late term abortions, begrudgingly so, it was probably because the life of the mother was at stake. So if it comes down to a doctor telling a mother, it's you or the baby, you have to pick well, that Democrat is doing what a reasonable person would do in saying, I think that obviously the mother should be allowed to make that difficult choice that I couldn't imagine I would make if I were in that situation. So we're simply saying that we want to empower women to make that choice and not say, well, if it comes down to, you know, the woman or the baby, the baby's got to survive and the mom's got to die. How can you say that it's reasonable for the government to impose that decision on someone. It's such a difficult decision. How can you say that? Now, I'm not saying that Ben Shapiro is actually making this argument, but certainly he would rebut my claim about that being untrue by saying that politicians like Barack Obama support late-term abortions. And of course, that's just an intellectually disingenuous point to make because as usual, we're saying that the mother should be empowered to make that really, really difficult decision. Nobody's pro-abortion. Some people might even surprisingly be against abortion personally, but still support someone else's right to have an abortion because they actually do put facts over feelings, unlike Ben Shapiro, but we'll get to that. Um, 
I want to get to more of his arguments. He continues by saying, pro-abortion extremists get away with their rhetoric because they use euphemistic language to describe what abortion is. Now, first and foremost, think about the language he's using to reframe the debate itself. He's saying that people who support abortion are not pro-choice, they're pro-abortion. And I'm not just arguing based on semantics. Framing really matters, and it's something that Republicans do all the time in order to win over support for their right-wing policies. And what he's doing is he wants you to think people in support of safe and legal abortions are, as he describes it, pro-abortion, pro-baby killing, as they would argue. But let me ask you this, Ben. 57% of Americans support safe and legal abortions. Do you honestly believe that a majority of the country is pro-murder of babies? Do you honestly think that they don't have a nuanced view on this issue? Maybe these people actually support legal abortions because they realize that banning abortion won't necessarily reduce the number of abortions that women have. It would just increase the number of unsafe, illegal abortions that they have. And also, if you really care about reducing the number of abortions, he can use his platform to actually fight the number of abortions that are being had. He could influence lawmakers like Donald Trump to support contraception, expanding access to contraception. But instead, individuals like Ben Shapiro and right-wingers, they don't want to expand access to contraception, which is the one thing that actually would reduce abortions. So I don't even believe that individuals like Steve King or Ben Shapiro are genuinely believing the bullshit they espouse on this, because if they did, they would be doing things, they would be promoting policies that would restrict abortions, or not necessarily restrict abortions, but limit the number of abortions. If you want to stop abortion or limit abortions, you advocate for contraception, but they don't want to do that, which tells you that they're not truly looking to limit the number of abortions, and it's because people like Ben Shapiro... They're propagandists. They have an agenda. And he shows you images of fetuses to tug at your heartstrings. And once he establishes that there's human-like qualities here, he then establishes the precise point where life begins. Once he gets you there, he says, life begins at fertilization. And he even makes the point that if we found a human embryo on another planet, headlines would rightly scream, human life found on Mars. Now, think of how odd that argument is. Because if we found any life on Mars, we would be over the moon. If we found a flower on Mars, we would all collectively lose our minds. If we found a gnat flying around on Mars, it would be absolutely a huge discovery. But does that mean that that wouldn't stop Ben Shapiro from swatting those motherfuckers away from his face or out of his food on Earth? Of course not. So he's trying to make a value judgment in a really strange and, quite frankly, counterintuitive way. And eventually, he gets to the point in this segment where he just drops all the innuendo and he just outright says what he thinks. He says, Abortion is the killing of this human life. The later the abortion takes place, the more brutal the procedure. So if aborting a 12-week-old fetus is brutal, but killing a 20-week-old fetus is even more brutal than fully developed human beings and children must be the ultimate sin when they're killed for Ben Shapiro, as they not only feel pain, 
unlike fetuses before 20 weeks, but they're actually aware of their existence and want to live. So I'm assuming that Ben Shapiro cares the most about children and adults, right? Seeing that he has repeatedly referred to himself as someone who's quote pro-life. So when you actually accept Ben Shapiro's argument and you take it to the next logical conclusion, you make that jump, then clearly if aborting a fetus is awful, then killing a fully formed adult or child has got to be the worst thing imaginable. It's got to be at the top of Ben Shapiro's priorities. So, I take it he speaks out against war all the time, right? If he's pro-life like he claims he is, then he's not going to pick and choose. He's going to be consistently pro-life and speak out in favor of all lives that are lost unnecessarily and arbitrarily, right? Well, let's look at a particular war. Let's just look at Afghanistan, for argument's sake. The number of civilian casualties that uh, resulted directly or indirectly from the Afghanistan war was anywhere between 100,000 and 350,000 lives. Did Ben Shapiro scream at the top of his lungs that this is unacceptable, this is murder? Actually, no. This is what pro-life Ben Shapiro said about the Afghanistan war. Quote, Enemy civilian casualties, okay by me. And here's what he says specifically. I'm getting really sick of people who whine about civilian casualties. Maybe I'm a hard-hearted guy, but when I see in the newspapers that civilians in Afghanistan or the West Bank were killed by American or Israeli troops, I don't really care. In fact, I would rather that the good guys use the Air Force to kill the bad guys, even if that means some civilians get killed along the way. One American soldier is worth far more than an Afghan civilian. This is the guy? who's trying to convince us that he's pro-life? Ben Shapiro does not give a flying fuck about life. The only reason why he is against abortion is because he knows that this is a wedge issue that consistently keeps evangelicals loyal to the Republican Party, and seeing that he's a Republican Party propagandist, then he's going to really try to hit home the point that abortion is murder. Abortion is murder, and murder is bad. But if murder is bad, then why doesn't he care? He literally said he doesn't care about civilian casualties. In fact, the title of his article says, Civilian Casualties Are Okay By Me. That's the guy who we're supposed to believe cares about life? What did Ben Shapiro say about the bomb that we gave to Saudi Arabia that hit a school bus and killed children in Yemen? What did he say about that? Is that not an abomination to individuals like Steve King or Ben Shapiro? Now look, I know what you're going to say. That article was published in 2002, but it's still up on Town Hall's website. He hasn't taken it down, and he is still writing articles for Town Hall. He writes these opinion pieces, and you'd think that if he moved away from that position and wanted to repudiate that view, that he would delete that article, but it's still up. It's still getting clicks. He doesn't care about life. He's not pro-life. And when you call individuals like Ben Shapiro and Steve King pro-life, then you are buying into their propagandist framing because people who are pro-war cannot be pro-life. Being pro-war and unapologetically in support of wars like Afghanistan, Iraq, that's antithetical 
to being pro-life. People like Ben Shapiro and Steve King don't care about life at all. Once life is born, they don't care about giving that life dignity or civil rights or civil liberties. They don't care if that life dies in wars. They don't care. These are not individuals who are pro-life. Calling them pro-life is the biggest joke ever. Now, if you actually are one of the few individuals in the country that is consistent on this issue and you still are personally morally against abortion, but you're also equally, if not more outraged about war, then I feel you. That's fine. I actually can respect that position. There can be disagreement on this issue. And as I stated, people who are pro-choice, some of them actually are morally against abortion, but they actually put facts over feelings and they know that banning abortion wouldn't necessarily achieve their goal of limiting abortions. Now, earlier this year, I covered the so-called March for Life, where a bunch of right-wing evangelical Republicans supposedly marched for life. And really, this was just an anti-abortion protest. They didn't march to end wars. They marched to stop abortion. And here's what I said about these individuals and why they're so wrong and why they don't have facts on their side. First of all, contrary to popular belief, abortion isn't tantamount to baby killing. Furthermore, the abortion rate in general continues to decline in the United States year after year. But for the few abortions that do occur, over 90% of them happen fewer than 13 weeks into pregnancies, which is the pre-gestation period. And just over 1% of abortions are performed after 21 weeks. Now note that states do not offer abortions to women if they are within the 22 to 24 week period of their pregnancy. Additionally, nearly a fifth of abortions are medically necessary and on the moral side of things, if you think abortions are immoral because fetuses may have the ability to feel pain, well, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists found that a fetus can't actually feel pain before 24 weeks, and the University of California found that they actually aren't able to feel pain until 28 weeks. And these are all statistics that are provided by the Guttmacher Institute, and if they're not convincing to you, that's perfectly fine. Because if you still are against abortions, if you're morally opposed to abortions, that's fine. But there is one tried-and-true method that absolutely reduces the number of abortions. Contraception. Greater access to contraception not only reduces teen pregnancy, but it also is much more effective at reducing abortion than prohibitive laws. And as The Intercept Saeed Jalani explains, participants of the March for Life know exactly how to reduce abortions. They can push their government to fund contraception. People who are marching in the so-called March for Life protest they're not advocating for greater access to contraception. In fact, they're against abortion and contraception. So they want to have it both ways. On one hand, they want to ban abortions, but on the other hand, they also want to ban contraception, which just so happens to be the one thing that actually reduces the number of abortions. Now, I know that instinctively, you might be inclined to say, well, there's one thing that can reduce abortions for sure. You just ban it. But that's actually not true. In fact, abortions, the abortion rate, generally speaking, in the United States overall was higher before it was legalized. So legalizing abortion actually does decrease the number of abortions. I know that sounds odd, but that's the numbers. That's the statistics that are widely available. So, I mean, I think that I've said everything I needed to. Anyone who is supposedly pro-life, Nine times out of ten, they're going to be completely hypocritical and not care at all about war.
So the next time you are confronted by someone who's pro-life, who tells you that you should support Brett Kavanaugh voting to overturn, overturn Roe v. Wade, possibly, why don't you ask them if they realize that overturning Roe v. Wade won't necessarily do what they think it will do in curtailing the number of abortions? Why don't you ask them why they're not supporting initiatives to expand access to contraception? Why don't you ask them what they thought about Saudi Arabia bombing children with bombs that our military gave them? What do they think about Saudi Arabia committing an actual genocide in Yemen with our approval and support? Ask them what they think about those issues. And if they don't actually speak out and have a lot to say about Yemen or the Iraq or Afghanistan wars or our drone strikes being carried out in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, they're not pro-life, and we cannot keep calling these people pro-life. Because I've said it once, I'll say it again. You cannot be pro-life if you are simultaneously pro-war, and you can't just even be ambivalent towards the idea of war. If you are truly pro-life, then you better be one of the loudest people in the country speaking out against wars, but seeing that most pro-lifers, quote pro-lifers, mind you, vote for Republicans all the time, and they're currently trying to ramp up tensions between the United States and Iran, which would be a war that would kill millions of people potentially, we all know that they're not truly pro-life. So I think it's safe to say that victims of rape and sexual assault have really been leading the charge against Kavanaugh, and Republicans are going out of their way to demonize these brave protesters. Donald Trump frequently uh, refers to them as screamers. Uh, Mitch McConnell called them the mob. Chuck Grassley also called them the mob. And really, it's sickening because I don't think there's anything more democratic than protesting your elected public officials. But if you're a Republican and you get triggered by someone who disagrees with your agenda, then they have to demonize and vilify those protesters because it makes them look bad. So... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez appeared on MSNBC in an interview with Chris Hayes, and she was asked to respond to Chuck Grassley's comments in particular about the way he's vilifying these protesters and referring to them as the mob. And she gave what I think is the perfect response, and she's proving that she has the exact mindset needed from a representative uh in this day and age when politicians just are refusing to listen to voters. To me, you know, I sort of feel like yelling at an elected representative is literally a definition of a free society <laughs> in like a literal yeah. sense. Like that's, that's what a free society allows. You can yell at someone in power. They can't like come to your house and take you away. Yeah, right? yeah. But they didn't like it so much. I want to play you Chuck Grassley talking mm -hmm. about mob rule and get your response. Sure. Take a listen. They have encouraged mob rule. When you hear things about get in their face, bother people at every restaurant where you can find a cabinet member, these are coming from public service that ought to set an example of civility in American society. And it's been made worse by what has happened to Judge Kavanaugh. I hope we can say no to mob rule by voting to confirmed Judge Kavanaugh. No to mob rule. Well, 
First of all, American democracy is built by the people for the people. It is our attempt at Americans pursuing self-governance. But, you know, I think uh, if a lot of these Republican senators are upset at the reaction that's going on, maybe they should stop running away from their town halls. Maybe they should visit their constituents. Maybe they should pick up the phone. Maybe they should answer emails. But because they are running away from the basic tenets of democracy, our job is not to preside over our communities. Our job is to listen to our communities. Our mm. job is to serve our communities. And we are, when we are not serving our communities by making sure that we are vetting justices, that we we are pursuing due process, that we are listening to sexual assault survivors in our communities, and we aren't doing our job. And these folks are not doing their job. I mean, what Chuck Grassley said there was just appalling, and I don't know how he's not ashamed of himself. As Republicans ruin our lives and commit acts of political violence against us, they expect civility. They demand civility, rather. Well, guess what, Chuck and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and all of these other right-wing babies who are referring to protesters as the mob. If you're going to ruin our lives, we're going to disrupt yours. And if you want to actually have a civilized discussion with your constituents, you could do that. You could hold a town hall with your community. You can respond to phone calls and emails. So what they're saying is ridiculous, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez echoed my feelings on this perfectly. She said, if a lot of these Republican senators are upset at the reaction that's going on, maybe they should stop running away from town halls. Maybe they should stop running away from constituents. Maybe they should pick up the phone. Maybe they should answer emails. And that is exactly what they needed to hear. That's exactly what someone needed to say in the mainstream media where that message is likely going to get to these politicians. And if you don't, if you continue to hide in the bathroom to avoid female protesters, who are peaceful protesters, mind you, then you can expect a lot more disruptions of your dinners at fancy restaurants. Because if they have no other means of reaching you and getting the message across, then you're giving them no choice. They have to disrupt your dinner because clearly that's the one thing they can do that creates media attention and gets Republicans to pay attention to their message. Now, Republicans may not care when they hear that message, but nonetheless, they're getting the message regardless if they disagree with it and don't act on it. But I think the thing that irritates me the most about all of these Republicans who are trying to demonize and vilify all of these protesters is that, first of all, you're demonizing people who are doing what democracy entitles them to. Protesting, as Chris Hayes said at the start of the clip, protesting and yelling at your elected officials is only one of the most American things that you can do. It's as American as apple pie. So if you are going to vilify them for doing what is permitted under the First Amendment, then you just need to come out and be honest with us. You don't care about democracy. You're openly hostile now towards democracy. And... The other thing that irritates me is that what elected officials aren't realizing, Chuck Grassley, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, is that they don't rule over us contrary to popular belief. We're their boss. 
we pay their checks. Our tax dollars are paying for those fancy dinners at restaurants. We're the ones that hire them. We're the ones that fire them. We are their bosses. But these politicians don't get that. And I wish that more Americans would have this mindset that they're their bosses. You're in control of these politicians. They represent you and nobody else. So they're supposed to anyways, even though they don't. But you're their bosses. So you can act like that. If you're a boss and you have subordinates, what do you do? Well, if they're not doing a good job, then you reprimand them. And if that still doesn't work, if you give them verbal and written warnings, then you have to fire them. That's how you have to treat politicians because you are their boss. Without them or without you, they wouldn't get paid because that's your tax dollars that go into their paychecks. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in this next clip talks about what's needed from representatives and she is proving that she is really going to be a phenomenal representative because the way that she engages with constituents, I mean, the difference between someone like her and Chuck Grassley really is night and day. So here's what she says about how she listens to her constituents and what other lawmakers should do to emulate her style of representing her district. A lot of it's about listening and, yeah. and keeping an open mind, right? I mean, you, you're, you're going to have decisions that you're going to have to encounter with where constituents might have different politics than yeah. you, the folks you represent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, that is part of why we've been so successful in the district is because people understand that our campaign and, and my candidacy has a very specific point of view. But also in part, actually largely in part, because I do not take any corporate lobbyist money, they know that I'm working for them. They know that they can call my office and pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, this is something that we disagree with and that I have an obligation to listen to my community. Sometimes I feel like I have this job of being something of a social worker or even yeah. a therapist in my district because this period has been so has been so re-traumatizing for so many folks and especially in a country where we do not have uh, reliable access to health care, let alone affordable health care. Let alone mental health care. Let alone Good mental health care. Yeah. This has been a very difficult time for immigrants, for women, for survivors, for people who just care about the health of American democracy. It's very stressful. And so that listening diffuses a lot of the tensions in our communities and it's a form of active work beyond just legislation or beyond just policy making it's really getting hands deep and our hands dirty in our communities and saying and finding the issues that we need to solve instead of just waiting for them to mm. to wash up on our door and i think that uh Really what we are seeing here with Kavanaugh, with, with all of this stuff, is just a complete abdication of responsibility, of our responsibility as representatives. When you are, when you are at the point where you are blaming your own constituents and calling your own constituents a mob, that is the exact opposite of being a representative. That is the exact opposite of being a public servant. And that tells me that those folks, anybody, regardless of your party, if you have that attitude, you gotta go. So what she said there about basically being a social worker or a sort of therapist to her constituents, that is the exact mindset that someone who is truly representing their base would have. That's the way that they would behave because your goal is to listen. You don't necessarily have to agree with everything your constituents say. I mean, this is a big country, right? There's a lot of 
disagreement intellectually when it comes to policy. So you're not going to agree with everything your constituents say, but it's your job to listen. And that's what she even said. I am paid to listen to my constituents. I mean, she's not elected yet, right? But if she is elected, and hopefully she will be, then that's her job. It's to listen. But for some reason, that principle is lost on members of Congress, especially Republicans. Now, she also says here that for the politicians who don't represent their constituents, quote, when you are at the point where you are blaming your own constituents and calling your own constituents a mob, that is the exact opposite of a representative. That is the exact opposite of being a public servant, and that tells me that these folks, anybody, regardless of party, if you have that attitude, you gotta go. And that is exactly it, because you got that job because of voters. They gave you that position, and they can take it away, and if you're not going to listen to them, then you, you've you gotta go. And, of course, this goes for the Democratic Party as well. Diane Feinstein. Individuals like Claire McCaskill, who are corporate Democrats, who don't want to listen to their constituents who want Medicare for all, or federal jobs guarantee, they've got to go too because we live in a representative republic. That means that we elect people to represent us, and they can't effectively represent us if they're not listening to what we want. But politicians have gotten so out of touch, and they only listen to their big dollar donors, that now the mere prospect of having to listen to the peasants and hear them scream at you is appalling to them they call them the mob well this goes to show you that that's how far democracy has fallen in the united states and i don't even think it's accurate to call the u.s a democracy especially when you see elected officials now openly hostile towards people who are exercising their first amendment rights so these republicans are an absolute disgrace and this is a message to all of their base that if you try to confront them about something that you disagree with, they're going to call you the mob and try to vilify you. That's how entitled pricks like Chuck Grassley, Mitch McConnell, and Donald Trump are. In an interview with MILF porn aficionado and tonsil stone eater Ted Cruz, Fox News fraud Sean Hannity, who's also a brazen hypocrite, decided to ask Ted Cruz about his experience last week at a restaurant in D.C. where he was basically forced to leave due to a lot of protesters who were confronting him about his Kavanaugh vote. And during this interview, he made a recommendation to Ted Cruz about what they can do to shut down these protests, and it was just brazenly undemocratic. So let's hear what he has to say, and then I have a message to Sean Hannity when we come back. And let me ask you this. I watched you, and I know your wife Heidi, I watched you get run out of a restaurant. I, yeah. We've seen it happen to Secretary Nielsen, Pam Bondi, it's happened mm -hmm. to Sarah Sanders, Mitch McConnell. Yep. It's happening yep. like on a daily basis. I don't think you should leave the halls of the Senate open. Yeah. And I'm saying that for the safety, the protect protection of people we elect. I, I fear for everyone's safety at this moment. There are a lot of senators who are having that conversation. You know, Monday night, Heidi was up in D.C. and the two of us went out about 9 o'clock at night to do a date night, just the two of us. We don't get to do that very often. We showed up at a restaurant that we love. It's a delightful restaurant. Unfortunately, somehow the protesters were there waiting for us as we walked in. They surrounded us. They screamed at us. They, 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 they basically shut down the restaurant and they made it impossible uh, to, to have dinner. And, and so Heidi and I got up to leave. They blocked her from getting out. 
when we left the restaurant, you know, this actually has not been reported, but we left the restaurant, we went out the door and around a back alley, and, and this mob of about 15 screaming leftist protesters chased Heidi and me down the alley, screaming and yelling at us. Uh, a waiter from the restaurant let us in the back door to the kitchen, and we took shelter in the kitchen with this screaming mob outside. Now, now, I'll tell you a happy ending to that. So about 10 minutes later, the police arrived and they removed the protesters. And I asked Heidi, I said, OK, well, what do you want to do now? Do you want to go somewhere else? What do you want to do? She said, no, I like this restaurant. Let's go have date night. So we went back through the kitchen, sat down at the same table, and we had a delightful, romantic dinner, just the two of us. So Sean Hannity says that since protesting Republican politicians at restaurants is becoming more common while he fears for their safety. And as a result, quote, I don't think you should leave the halls of the Senate open. I fear for everyone's safety at this moment. So in other words, Sean Hannity wants members of the Senate to be even more insulated from the public. It's already the case, mind you, that they don't show up to town halls they refuse to return phone calls. They don't even answer emails. In fact, you'd be lucky to get an automated response from one of their staffers. And he wants to make sure that these elected officials who are supposed to be responsive to their constituents are even more insulated from the public. And the one place that protesters are still able to reach members of the Senate through the actual halls of the Senate, well, Sean Hannity wants to cut them off from that as well. So let's give Sean Hannity a little crash course in cause and effect. If it's the case that a lack of responsiveness to constituents is what initially catalyzed this phenomenon where they see you at restaurants and they protest you, then what do you think is going to happen, Sean, if you make it even more difficult for constituents to reach their elected officials? Do you honestly think that this is going to reduce the number of dinners being disrupted at restaurants? I mean, you can't honestly believe that. You're only going to make matters worse. The reason why so many dinners are being disrupted, why so many members of the Senate are being shouted at is because they refuse to listen. So if you take away another means of them being able to protest and get the message across to members of the Senate, well, you're only going to make matters worse. But Sean Hannity doesn't think. He just wants to insulate people in power and he claims that he's really concerned with you know the safety of senators and generally speaking i think we all are we don't want there to be violence certainly we believe in civil disobedience but nonviolent methods are absolutely important but the reason why i don't think he believes in their safety is because when alex jones followed bernie sanders around an airport and harassed him Sean Hannity said nothing about that. So if you're concerned with the safety of senators, I'd imagine that a raving lunatic like Alex Jones might pose the biggest risk to politician safety. But Sean Hannity didn't say anything about that. And what he's really concerned about here is grassroots activists actually being able to influence politicians. He doesn't like that showing up to the halls of the Senate actually is an effective way to get your voice heard. He hates that. He doesn't want politicians to be persuaded by grassroots activists because that'd be going against the policies that he wants to advocate for. So Sean Hannity is nothing more than a fraud. And if truly 
reducing the number of dinner disruptions is his goal, then you need to expand the number of ways that protesters are able to reach politicians. If you reduce that, you're going to see a lot more dinner disruptions. So I don't, I don't, I just don't believe anything he says. I don't believe he's concerned with safety. It's just about punishing the left and punishing grassroots activists because this is the definition of a propagandist. All he does is propaganda at the behest of the Republican Party. He's as much an arm of the Republican Party as the RNC. That's how big of a role Sean Hannity plays. He is pure propaganda. And in saying that, these protesters should also not be allowed to protest the halls of the Senate and they shouldn't be allowed to protest politicians at restaurants. He needs to admit that he's just against democracy. He's against democracy. He doesn't think protesters should be allowed to exercise their First Amendment rights. They're being nonviolent. Has there been any incidents where a protester has attacked a member of the Senate? No, they're just shaming them. They're yelling at them and they're trying to communicate what they want politically. So there's no security threat. There's no safety risk that they pose. He is just an elitist prick that wants to insulate people in power from the peasants. That's all this is about. Back in 2016, during the Paris Climate Talks, world leaders commissioned the IPCC to do a meta-analysis on climate change, and two years later, we're finally seeing their findings. And they're devastating, to say the least. So according to Jonathan Watts of The Guardian, the world's leading climate scientists have warned there is only a dozen years for global warming to be kept to a maximum of 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which even half a degree will significantly worsen the risks of drought, floods, extreme heat, and poverty for hundreds of millions of people. The authors of the landmark report by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released on Monday say urgent and unprecedented changes are needed to reach the target, which they say is affordable and feasible, although it lies at the most ambitious end of the Paris Agreement pledge to keep temperatures between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. The half-degree difference could also prevent corals from being completely eradicated and ease pressure on the Arctic. According to the study, which was launched after approval at a final plenary of all 195 countries in Incheon in South Korea that saw delegates hugging one another with some in tears, the world is currently one degree Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. Following devastating hurricanes in the United States, record droughts in Cape Town, and forest fires in the Arctic, the IPCC makes clear that climate change is already happening, upgraded its risk warning from previous reports, and warned that every fraction of additional warming would worsen the impact. At 1.5 degrees Celsius, the proportion of the global population exposed to water stress could be 50% lower than at 2 degrees Celsius in notes. Food scarcity would be less of a problem and hundreds of millions fewer people, particularly in poor communities, would be at risk of climate-related poverty. At 2 degrees Celsius, extremely hot days, such as those experienced in the Northern Hemisphere this summer, would become more severe and common, increasing heat-related deaths and causing more forest fires. But the greatest difference would be to nature. 
insects, which are vital for pollination of crops and plants, are almost twice as likely to lose half their habitat at 2 degrees Celsius compared to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Corals would be 99% lost at the higher of the two temperatures, but more than 10% have a chance of surviving if the lower target is reached. Carbon pollution would have to be cut by 45% by 2030, compared with a 20% cut under the 2 degrees Celsius pathway, and come down to zero by 2050, compared with 2075 for 2 degrees Celsius. This would require carbon prices that are three to four times higher than for a 2 degrees Celsius target. But the costs of doing nothing would be far higher. So, reading this report sent chills down my spine this is utterly terrifying we've got 12 years to get our act together will we do it unfortunately it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case because look during the paris climate accords most countries came together and even if the paris climate agreement did not go far enough it still was a step in the right direction but now we're seeing the emergence of right-wing populism and right-wing demagogues across the world like Donald Trump who are choosing, unilaterally so, to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And now, far-right lunatic Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil is poised to become the next president and if he's elected, like Trump, he pledges also to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, and he also has pledged to open up the Amazon rainforest in Brazil to big business at a time when we desperately need to be moving towards reforestation and not deforestation as quickly as possible. So by and large, inhabitants of the world chose a hell of a time to start falling for absolute loony right-wing demagogues like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, and I don't want to draw, you know, too much of a comparison between Trump and Bolsonaro because I think that Bolsonaro is more akin to someone like Duterte, according to Glenn Greenwald, who lives in Brazil, because he just would be essentially a dictator. He states that he wants to do extrajudicial killings in Brazil in order to end the country's unrest. So someone like him, I mean, it wouldn't just be a disaster for Brazil, it would be a disaster for the world. And he's still facing off against Fernando Haddad, who's more akin to Lula and part of the Workers' Party, but if Bolsonaro wins, like Donald Trump, he's going to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So we've got the United States pulling out, and Jair Bolsonaro potentially doing the same in Brazil if he wins, which I hope he doesn't, but seems like that's going to be the case. So at a time when we need to be doing everything we can to make progress and we have 12 years left, everyone around the world is falling for right-wing demagogues. And part of it is due to justifiable rage against the establishment who's not representing them. So it's not just the people, it's the establishment who failed the people in all these countries. But I mean, this all came at the worst time possible. This literally could be the beginning of the end of humanity, and certainly if humanity is somehow able to survive the worst of what climate change has to offer, the world will never be the same. So I honestly don't know what to say about this. I don't. It's really, really depressing. People born today, I can't even imagine what their golden years, so-called golden years, 
will be like because of climate change. And as you could tell, I'm not too optimistic that the world will come together and act by um, by 2030. Corporations, they account for 71% of the world's carbon emissions. So, of course, we all have to take matters into our own hands, but even if each citizen does everything they possibly can, we all stop eating meat and fight against factory farming, we stop driving and we rely on public transport, it's still not enough. Corporations are polluting and the one force that actually can take on corporations is governments around the world. But they're just not willing to do that. So this is really, really depressing. We have a right-wing majority on the Supreme Court that's very solid. So if we get a Democratic president like Bernie Sanders and he passes climate change reform, the court can strike it down. So it's not only that we're not doing anything, we're choosing to not act. Even if we somehow muster the political courage to act, well, our hands are tied. We are fucked as a species. So last week, right after California Governor Jerry Brown signed their state's net neutrality bill into law, just hours later, the Justice Department announced that they'd be suing the state of California in order to overturn that law. And now the entire internet industry is dogpiling on California in an effort to also get them to overturn their net neutrality law. And they are suing California alongside the Justice Department. So as Heather Kelly of CNN Business reports, the internet industry is suing the state of California over its days-old net neutrality law. The lawsuit filed on Wednesday by major trade groups representing broadband companies is the second major lawsuit filed against the state over the law. The first was brought by the Justice Department. The impending legal battle could drag on for many months, if not longer. Daniel Lyons, an associate professor at Boston College Law School who specializes in telecommunications and internet regulation, told CNN. A lot is riding on the outcome. The California law is considered the most thorough state-level net neutrality legislation yet passed, and other states are expected to use it as a blueprint for their own laws. If California wins in court, it would open the door for those other states to take similar actions. However, the FCC could try to come back with an order to block their efforts again, Lyons said. The industry groups taking part in the new lawsuit represent major companies, including AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, as well as other cable companies and wireless providers across the U.S., the groups had previously lobbied against the state law. CNN is owned by AT&T. We oppose California's action to regulate internet access because it threatens to negatively affect services for millions of consumers and harm new investment and economic growth. Republican and Democratic administrations time and again have embraced the notion that actions like this are preempted by federal law. The trade groups, U.S. Telecom, CTIA, the Wireless Association, the Internet and Television Association, and the American Cable Association said in a statement, We will continue our work to ensure Congress adopts bipartisan legislation to create a permanent framework for protecting the open internet that consumers expect and deserve. So for those of you who are wondering just how effective California's net neutrality law would be, 
this is all the proof you need that it's an effective bill because it clearly scares the internet industry. Otherwise, why else would the totality of the internet industry, all of their lobbyists, all of their lawyers and representatives join up to sue the state of California? It's because they know exactly what this would do. This would curtail their anti-consumer practices. And you have to really point out the Orwellian doublespeak here because they're talking about a free and open internet and how this harms consumers. We just talked about this last week. California's bill is the strongest bill in the nation because it goes a little bit further than other states in order to protect consumers. But here, they're claiming that they support an open internet. Meanwhile, we all know that that's not true because they lobbied to kill net neutrality. It was Verizon and AT&T that put pressure on the FCC while they were planning to repeal net neutrality and convinced Ajit Pai to adopt a rule preempting states in the event they didn't like the FCC's repeal of net neutrality and wanted to create their own legislation. So make no mistake about it. These are not your allies. They are not concerned with consumers. They don't care about the op- the uh, internet being free and open. All that they care about is their bottom line. These companies have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value, and that's their concern. They don't care about your access to websites unless it means charging you even more money than they're already charging you. So this really goes to show you just how well that uh, lawmakers in California crafted this bill because it is scaring these companies shitless. So now we have... Two major legal challenges. The Justice Department, literally, Donald Trump's administration, is suing California, and now the entire internet industry is suing California. That's two major lawsuits. So I have no idea how this is going to turn out, but they are using all the force they possibly have in order to make sure that this law is overturned. Now, again, we talked about how Oregon and Washington are two other states that have passed their own net neutrality laws. But the reason why California is being targeted is specifically because of their provision that prohibits zero rating. So what that does is, let's say you have five gigs of data each month, and you're a little bit disinclined from using apps like Netflix because that's going to eat up a lot of your data. Well, what companies like T-Mobile and AT&T will do is they'll introduce their own streaming app and they'll tell consumers, hey, if you don't want to eat up your data using these video streaming services, well, if you use our video streaming app, that's not going to count towards your data and you're free to use it as much as you want. Well, what does that do? That provides consumers with an incentive to use AT&T or T-Mobile streaming service over services like Netflix. That's anti-competitive because they're trying to kill off their competitors in order to artificially boost numbers for their own app. It's how they plan to dominate the market is by a lack of regulation. But what California is doing is not only protecting that neutrality, but is saying, no, you're not allowed to block and throttle websites for consumers. And also, you're not allowed to try to kill off competitors by punishing people who use video streaming apps other than your own. And it's absolutely legislation that is crucial. And it's what the FCC was working towards under the leadership of Tom Wheeler. They were originally 
planning to tackle zero rating. However, we had a presidential upset, and then Trump got in there and promoted Ajit Pai, and then the rest is history. We all know what happened. Within the first year of him being in charge of the FCC, he repealed net neutrality. So we need this lawsuit to go in our favor because if it does, if the Californian law holds up in court, then as the article states, this could act as a blueprint for other states who do want to replicate this law in their state. But a lot of states, even if a lot of constituents are currently putting pressure on state lawmakers to adopt similar legislation, they're too afraid to do it. California was actually bold. Their lawmakers, like Scott Wiener, said, you know what, I don't know how this will turn out legally for us, but regardless, we're going to do what's right. We're going to represent our constituents and we're going to codify net neutrality into law. Other states aren't so bold. They're, they're afraid, right? They don't want to do anything that might cost them money, even if it means protecting consumers. So what we're currently seeing also, to give you a little bit of an update to the uh, Justice Department lawsuit, is they're trying to put a stay on California's law saying, well, you know what, that law can't actually go into effect until the uh, justice system makes its determination as to whether or not this law is legal in the first place. So they're pulling out all the stops. It's incredibly dirty, but understand that people who are claiming to be on your side and really more specifically corporations who are claiming to be on your side and lobbying firms like uh, US Telecom and CTIA who are claiming to be on your side, they're not on your side. They don't care about you. They care about their customers and their customers are Verizon, AT&T, Comcast. They're paid millions of dollars every single year to represent them and lobby for the policies that AT&T and Comcast want. And that's what they're doing now. They're still representing their customers. If the entire internet industry is trying to dogpile on you in order to overturn your net neutrality law, you know you're doing something right. You know that you're looking out for the consumers in a way that's really bold. And I commend lawmakers in California. Earlier this year, Bernie Sanders teamed up with grassroots organizers to put pressure on Disney to raise workers' wages, and he won that battle. And after that, he set his sights on Amazon in order to pressure them to raise their workers' wages to $15 an hour, and he won that battle as well. Even if Amazon quickly found other ways to screw over workers by eliminating bonuses, but nonetheless... Bernie Sanders has been targeting companies one by one in order to get them to pay their workers a living wage, and he is now setting his sights on the next company he wants to put pressure on. And that company is McDonald's. So according to Jordan Valinsky of CNN Business, Amazon? Check. Disney? Check. McDonald's? The fast food chain is Senator Bernie Sanders' next minimum wage target. He wants McDonald's to give its workers a pay raise to $15 an hour. In a letter to CEO Steve Easterbrook on Thursday, Sanders demanded McDonald's boost workers' paychecks and let workers unionize. Sanders had previously called on Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos to increase the company's minimum wage, and Amazon followed through this week. If McDonald's raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour and respected the constitutional rights of your workers to form a union, it would set an example for the entire fast food industry to follow, Sanders wrote in a letter addressed to Easterbook and posted to his Twitter account. Sanders said he talked to McDonald's employees who complained that their current pay makes getting by difficult. He claimed that many McDonald's employees need federal assistance, including food stamps and public housing. He added that McDonald's is
isn't a poor company. The company made $5.2 billion in profit last year on nearly $23 billion in sales. McDonald's is a healthy business. Revenue has increased recently as McDonald's offered better food and technology, and the stock is up nearly 80% since Easterbrook took over in 2015. So you know that if you are the CEO of McDonald's and you're on the board of McDonald's, you're shitting yourself right now because when Bernie Sanders targets you, Bernie Sanders wins because he doesn't just make a Twitter post condemning McDonald's for treating workers like garbage and not paying them enough. He actually follows through and organizes with grassroots protesters in order to put pressure on McDonald's. And this is a strategy that clearly is working, hence why he keeps doing it. If you got Disney to give Disneyland workers a pay raise to $15 an hour and got Amazon to do, to do the same, even if they are finding other ways to screw workers, I still think it's a step in the right direction. But certainly putting pressure on them is the really hard way to do this. If you really want companies to treat workers fairly, you've got to do this with policy. But unfortunately, Republicans are in control of every branch of government and they refuse to do anything that would benefit workers. And they're just 100% beholden to these large multinational corporations like McDonald's and Walmart. So what Bernie Sanders is doing here is pretty brilliant because he's using his bully pulpit, what little influence he has over these com companies to let them know if they don't actually raise their workers' wages, we're going to put pressure on you, we're going to shame you, and that might lead to you losing some money in sales because people who are mindful of the struggle of workers aren't going to want to eat at your restaurant if they're now aware because of Bernie Sanders that you're treating your workers like garbage. And I often see an argument from people that say, well, look, these are low-wage workers because they have low-skill jobs. But this is an argument that comes from people who clearly have never worked a day of customer service in their lives because customer service, it actually does require a special skill to be able to put up with an ungodly amount of bullshit from the public who treats you like dirt, who thinks that you are there to serve them and to kiss their ass and they can treat you like garbage, they can yell at you and do whatever you want. To be able to put up with that abuse on a daily basis that does require a special kind of skill and certain people can't do it. When I worked in the service industry, there were times where I actually went through really deep depressions because it was so difficult putting up with abuse from the public on a daily basis. People just yelling at you for arbitrary reasons and taking out their frustrations with, with corporate policy on you when you have no power to change that. When these low-wage workers and low-level workers have been fucked over by corporate policies themselves. So to anyone that makes the argument that low-wage workers at McDonald's deserve less than a living wage simply because these jobs don't require any special skills or training, what you're advocating for is these people not being able to support themselves. A McDonald's worker who works 40 hours a week should be able to buy a car, buy an apartment, or rent an apartment, potentially buy a house one day, put themselves through college, support their family. But nowadays, they can't do it. They can barely get by because federally, we're not raising the minimum wage. It's not keeping up with inflation. And these companies are making record profits 
in part because they are exploiting their employees. And it's absolutely disgusting. It's about time that a politician speaks out. And now that Bernie Sanders has so much popularity after the 2016 election, he's doing what he can to affect change. And it just shows that if you want a true fighter for the people in 20, in 2020, I was going to say 2016, in 2020, you are going to be a fierce and vocal advocate for Bernie Sanders because he's proving to us again that he's never going to stop fighting for workers and average Americans. And I'm hopeful that he can get McDonald's to buckle in the same way he got Bezos to buckle as well. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. If you'd like to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com support or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I will see you all next week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Take care.